0: I want to start this morning in a little bit of a unique way. So, if you have the courage uh, to to go there with me and take a risk, I invite you to participate. I'm going to start with an imaginative exercise. Does that sound good? Yeah. To a few of you, awesome. Well, the rest of you, let's just do this together. Um, So, I want you to um, I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Now listen to this phrase, think about this phrase. I just don't understand them, I just don't understand them. When you think of them, who comes to mind, what people? Don't say out loud, imagine, silence. Now I want you to imagine one person. It doesn't have to be a real person, but one person who embodies them. Someone who you just don't understand, who simply by being, they challenge everything you think and believe about life and the world, the way the world works. Someone who maybe even deeply offends you. What's that person like? Imagine them, have a picture of them in your head not just an idea of a person, but a very real person. Now with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine this space where you're sitting right now. The lighting in the room, the deep red carpet, the stage, the sanctuary, the people around you. And now I want you to imagine that person walking into the room and sitting down on the pew right beside you and worshiping with you, worshiping next to you. Now, how do you feel? Are you tense, anxious, afraid, uncomfortable? I want you to take a snapshot of both that person that you're imagining and also a snapshot of the feelings you have right now, hold on to those feelings. Keep them in your mind and heart. Now open open your eyes. I've been praying for you this week, a lot of you by name, that just like I prayed earlier, just like we read from the book of First John, that God would expand the capacities of our heart to love people, to feel empathy, to have kindness, to live with this sort of non-anxious presence in the world. And I think if we're going to be the sort of church that God is calling us to be, a church where people can belong, where every person can belong, even before they believe, a place where people can belong and a place where people can, over time, come to know God, a a place where people can be in process. If we're going to be that sort of church more and more, then we're going to have to be okay with sitting with those feelings that you just experienced, sitting with them, not trying to get away from them, but just having them, maybe voicing them and processing them with people you trust. And we're going to see a message this morning in this really crazy story in Acts chapter eight, where we see that Jesus is for the outsider. Jesus is for the other Jesus is for the other. Whoever the other is for you, Jesus is for that person. Whoever you just imagined, Jesus is for that person. So this passage, as we continue in our sermon series on the book of Acts, this passage is so important. It's critical for us as a church, but I also think it's really important for you as you grow as a human being and also as you grow as a follower of Jesus. So Let's unpack this story, and we're going to do it in three parts. Uh, first, we're going to look at the characters in the first few verses, and then we're going to see the conversation that they have. And then finally, the last part is conversion. Characters, conversation, and conversion. Let's look at these, these three parts of the story. So first, in the first few verses, verses 26 through 29, we meet some characters. First, we meet a man named Philip. Philip. Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you've met Philip before. He first shows up on the scene in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the seven leaders who's empowered to oversee the daily food distribution in Acts chapter 6. A lot of scholars think that these were seven deacons, the first deacons in the church. So you need to not be confused because there are actually two Philips in the book of Acts and in the story of the early church. There's Philip the Apostle, who you may remember, he's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, But then there's also this Philip, Philip the deacon. Um, He's called throughout church history, uh, Saint Philip the evangelist. And so that's the Philip we see in this story. Philip is so encouraging to me. If you were here last week as Jamin preached and uh, we saw Philip interacting in Samaria with the magician named Simon, Um, Philip is really encouraging to me. He's very inviting. And here's why. If you think about a lot of the apostles throughout the book of Acts, they almost seem like otherworldly. You know, like in Acts chapter two, Peter preaches to thousands of people and like amazing things are happening. The Holy Spirit's falling, tongues of fire. uh, People are speaking in different languages. In Acts chapter five, the 12 apostles are in jail and then there's prison break and they all break out of jail together. Paul, he hasn't come on the scene uh, a little bit, but he'll come on the scene more next week. Spoiler alert. Um, Paul, in a few weeks, we're gonna see him like raising dead people back to life. Like these apostles seem just crazy and insane and otherworldly. But then we also have people who aren't known as apostles, like Stephen and like this man, Philip. Philip's just an ordinary dude. He's just an ordinary dude who steps into some pretty extraordinary things. So perhaps he's someone that we can relate to a little bit more. He steps into extraordinary things because there's a second character in this story that's very prominent It's very important and significant, but is somewhat easy to overlook. The second character in the story, you may have noticed when when I read the passage of Scripture earlier, it's a really strange passage of Scripture. Like there are some things going on that feel very foreign and weird to us and to our 21st century experience. Let me just show you a few of these examples. In the very first verse in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, listen to this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. An angel of the Lord, is that an experience you have often? Look at verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then we see Philip, the ESV says that he ran to the chariot. So the spirit says to Philip, and then the real kicker comes at the end of the passage in in verse 39. Listen to what happens here. So Philip baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. What? And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared. The spirit of the Lord just whisked him away and plopped him down at a place called Azotus. And he traveled about preaching the gospel. Like, I don't know about you, but that's pretty foreign to the way I go about my days, right? That's not my normal experience. Angels speaking to me, the spirit speaking to me, the spirit just taking me away. And like, I, I just open my eyes. I'm in a different place. So what do we do with this? The spirit, this sort of spirituality of this passage that's so weird and so foreign. It would be pretty easy, maybe, um, to be skeptical, to be really skeptical. And, and just maybe to say, like that is just so strange. And these are primitive first century people. They don't have our 21st century knowledge and understanding of the world. So we know as mature and enlightened people that these sorts of things just don't really happen. So let's be skeptical and write it off. It's easy to take that road perhaps. It's also easy like many people do to say, you know what, okay, okay, this did perhaps really happen. It's in the Bible, so I guess it happened, but maybe God worked in these miraculous sort of supernatural spiritual ways back then, but he stopped. The end of the first century, the end of the Acts of the Apostles, like he stopped working in those ways in our world. Maybe that's a little bit easier as well, but here's the, here's the hard way to examine this passage. And I think what it invites us to the hard work around this passage is inviting you to examine yourself. Like instead of just looking back so skeptically, like maybe look at yourself and wonder why, why is this so foreign to your experience? Is your life just filled with so much clutter and chaos and noise that You, unlike Philip, can't listen to what the Spirit might be saying to you. You can't be aware of Christ's very real presence with you, and you miss it. Do the hard work of examining yourself. What's keeping you from this sort of experience like Philip has? Do you walk throughout your days with this sort of Holy suspicion, like eagerly looking. How is God at work around me? Christ, where are you, spirit? What are you saying to me? Help me to listen and be still and quiet and remove myself from the clutter and chaos so I don't miss you. I invite you to do the hard work to examine your own life. And why is it that this is so foreign to your experience? So the spirit leads Philip to encounter this person, the third character in the story. And I cannot emphasize enough how shocking of a person this would have been to the earliest readers of the book of Acts. How shocking of a person this would have been when Philip went back to the apostles and to the other leaders in the early church and told them what had happened. I can't emphasize enough how shocking this person, this story would have been. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that Luke is so specific with all of the spiritual language in this passage. Luke and Philip, they're making very clear, like, Philip's not orchestrating this. This isn't Philip's doing. Philip's not the person behind this. Like, this is God at work. Like, God's the one who's saying, hey, Philip, go here, and you're just going to happen upon this chariot. There's just going to happen to be some water on this desert road. Hey, Philip, go here. I want you to meet this man. Like, this is God orchestrating this. And so we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. We see in the story that um, he's a powerful person. He's a person of great influence. He's uh, sort of like the CFO of uh, the palace of Ethiopia. He would have been a person of great wealth. You can imagine probably an ornate carriage that he's traveling in. Um, we see that he's a person of power because in verse 38, he commands the driver to stop the chariot so he can be baptized. So this is a person of influence and wealth and power. But to the Jewish people, and remember that the Christian movement at this point in the first century is still a sect within Judaism. To the Jewish people, this this Ethiopian eunuch would have been an outsider in every way imaginable. So he's coming back from Jerusalem And we know that he's a a religious minority. He's not ethnically a part of the people of um, the Jewish people. He's a religious minority. So because of that, the the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, says that that he would not have been allowed to enter into the um, inner court of the temple. He would have been excluded. He would have been left on the outside because he's a religious minority. He's also a black man, and so he's a racial minority. And then he's, as the passage tells us clearly, he's he's a eunuch. He's someone who doesn't fit into our 21st century and especially first century understandings of gender. He's a person who would have been on the outside in every way. In fact, look at this little bit grotesque and gruesome passage in, in Deuteronomy 23. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. This is a person who would have been excluded. But we know he's coming back from Jerusalem. He's reading from this scroll. You can imagine that he's a person that's just trying to figure out what is my place in God's world? All I know is is exclusion. What's my place in God's story? Now, Luke doesn't give us a lot of backstory, background. Why is this person a eunuch? Scholars, as you'd imagine, they love to debate about what what might be going on, what might his backstory be. But there's nothing important enough that Luke thinks we, we need to know. So despite whatever his backstory may be, we can acknowledge how shocking this would have been to Philip, to Peter, and the other apostles how shocking it would have been to Luke's readers as he started passing around these stories. But we also need to acknowledge how relevant this is for us as 21st century people. Like you guys know that we're just bombarded with heated conversations around all sorts of different things. And if we numbered, if we had a list, like the most heated conversations down to the most I don't know if this exists, but like the most gentle and loving conversations. Like near the top of the list, maybe at the top of the list would be conversations and debates around gender. But here in the story of the early church, we see that the first Gentile, the first non-Jewish convert to Christianity is someone who does not fit into our normal uh, traditional understandings of gender. That's massive. And that should blow our minds the very first convert to Christianity, a black person who doesn't fit into our traditional understandings of gender. Look at this quote, I put it in your bulletin. It's from a writer and a theologian named Scott McKnight. Look at what Scott writes. We've made the church into the American dream for our own ethnic group with the same set of convictions about next to everything. Does that sound familiar? No one else feels welcome. What Jesus and the apostles taught was that you were welcomed because the church welcomed all to the table. How far we've come from this first century uh, practice of Christianity. Here's another quote. I'm from Philip Yancey. The New Testament holds up the model of a church whose activities exist primarily for the sake of outsiders. What keeps us from becoming the church that God had in mind? What keeps us from becoming the church that God had in mind? I think if we really got this story, and it's massive implications for us as 21st century people, our churches today would look very different. And it beautifully portrays the sort of church that we desire to be at Christ City, the vision that we have for our church to be truly a place where people can belong. Because the message of Jesus, for anyone who feels excluded, for anyone who feels on the outside, for anyone who feels on the margins, the message of Jesus is clear. I'm for you. And so what would it look like for us to be that sort of church? Not a church just for one ethnic group where we all share the exact same convictions about everything so that nobody else feels included, but a church for everyone, a church for the other, a church for the outsider. So Philip, led by the spirit, meets this Ethiopian eunuch, and I want to dig into the conversation that they have. Because at the end of the conversation, something dramatic happens. So it's worth a few minutes of our time. So, so Philip goes up to the chariot. Um, it was common practice in the day when you're reading um, a whole, something that you considered holy, like a sacred text, that you'd read it aloud like we do when we gather here on Sundays. And so Philip hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading aloud from Isaiah. What we know is Isaiah chapter 53. And so Philip engages in conversation. Hey, hey, what are you reading? Do you understand what you're reading about? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how could I unless someone explains it to me? So come on up and let's have a conversation about it. We don't know much about the conversation that they had. There's one verse that gives us some really important clues. It's verse 35, Acts 8, verse 35. Philip began with that very passage from Isaiah chapter 53. Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus the good news about Jesus. What what does that mean? The same Greek word, good news about Jesus, actually shows up in verse 40 as well when it says that Philip traveled about preaching the gospel. Good news, gospel, comes from the same Greek word. What is it that Philip might have said to this man? What would their conversation have been like? What's the good news? What's the good news about Jesus? What's the gospel? Now, I'll say this before we go any further. I wish that we could talk for hours about this. Like, if any of you guys have been to our rabbit hole lecture series where we just go down the rabbit hole about different things and talk for three hours around a topic, I wish we could do that now, but we're not. Don't worry. Like, your lunch plans are safe. Um, But I would say that if any of this, like, strikes you and you want to have more conversation, I'd love to do that. Like, I would genuinely love to have lunch or coffee and hang out and talk more about this. That would be really fun and energizing for me. But I'd also recommend to you um, this book. Uh, It's called The King Jesus Gospel. It's by Scott McKnight. Uh, There are a handful of copies at the book table. So I recommend if if you're interested, if your interest is piqued as we talk about this, I recommend you check it out. Uh, The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. So what's the gospel? What's the good news about Jesus that Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch would have been having a conversation about? Here's my bold claim listen to this. This is such an important conversation because many of you and me too, we've been handed and we hold on to this hollow caricature of the gospel instead of the real and rich and deep and robust gospel good news that we have in scripture. We've been handed a hollow caricature in the the implications of that are massive. Like, if you look at our broader evangelical landscape and you see chaos and um, fractures and tribalism, I think that this is one of the things at the foundation of all of that unhealth. Embracing a hollow caricature of the gospel. Here, here are some hollow, hollow gospels that we've been handed. Believe this message and you'll be saved or you'll go to heaven. Believe this and you'll go to heaven. When I was in college, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to, to share the story. Uh, when I was in college, I, um, I participated at a local church in this thing called Judgment House. Are any of y'all familiar with Judgment House? Okay, um, if you're not, uh, God has been gracious unto you. And so for you, I'll give just a really quick uh, rundown of what Judgment House is, what you've fortunately missed uh, throughout your whole life. Um, So Judgment House is a dramatic theatrical rendering of heaven and also hell with emphasis on hell. And afterwards, I was gonna say a conversation, but that's the wrong word, a a talk, a heavy-handed lecture about how you can avoid that. That's judgment house. And for myself and for many of you, that's the gospel that you've been handed. Do you, like, is that what Philip and this Ethiopian person were talking about? Another hollow gospel that you may have been handed is what's commonly known as the four spiritual laws. God loves you. God has, or you're sinful. Jesus died for you and receive him, and you can be forgiven. This produces what Dallas Willard has called vampire Christianity, vampire Christianity, where where we want the blood of Jesus, but then we want nothing to do with Jesus until we die. Vampire Christianity. Or another gospel that you've been handed, perhaps is what's known theologically as justification by faith. It is by grace alone through faith alone. Now I wanna be clear that some of those things are, are good and true and rich, like justification by faith. Like I love justification by faith and we could spend our lives digging into that and studying and thinking and it would be good and rich and rewarding. But what's the good news about Jesus? What's the gospel? what would have been the content of the conversation that Philip was having on this day in this person's chariot? What did evangelism look like for these first century people? Think about um, a story that we encountered a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter seven. You may remember another deacon in the early church named Stephen, who's the first martyr in the church. The first martyr as a follower of Jesus. And in Acts chapter seven, he lays out this long narrative, starting with Abraham and culminating in the person and work of Jesus. We're going to see over and over and over again, that same sort of thing happen in the book of Acts. You see these first century Jewish people were narrative people. They were story people. They love to tell stories, they love to tell narratives. But here's what we've done as 21st century post-Enlightenment Westerners. We've ripped Jesus out of a story. We've ripped Jesus out of a narrative. You've made Jesus all about you and your personal salvation. And it would look so foreign to Philip and to Peter, to Paul and to Jesus. Like this just isn't the way that they would have talked about the gospel, the good news, the euangelion about Jesus. So here's a a summary of the way Scott McKnight presents it in his book. The gospel is the story of Jesus completing the story of Israel for the sake of the whole cosmos. Let me say that again. The gospel is the story of Israel or the story of Jesus completing the story of Israel for the sake of the whole cosmos. This was the content of Stephen's evangelism in Acts chapter seven. And I think Philip, who was buddies with Stephen, this would have been the content of their conversation as well. The story of Israel culminating in Jesus for the sake of the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now that's something worth digging into. And as you do, you will see that under this broad umbrella, there are things like justification by faith and there are massive implications for your personal life. But we can't reduce the story of the gospel because the damaging results are really, really big as we're seeing all around our culture right now. So then something dramatic happens after Philip shares his story talks about this narrative culminating in Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Something dramatic happens in verses 36 through 38. The Ethiopian eunuch hears this good news about Jesus and he understands it. And in verse 36, he says, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized right now? So he commands his chariot driver. They stop, Philip baptizes him. This is... Really, really huge. And here's why it's so big. Because there's this person who's an outsider, who's only known exclusion. And all of a sudden, this outsider is connected to, is united to, becomes one with the body of Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection in his baptism. Mystically, man, we could. Ooh, we need to have lunch around this, mystically and metaphysically connected and united to the person and the very body of Jesus. This person, this Ethiopian eunuch, whose gender many of you would not understand and would criticize and would judge, this person's body is metaphysically and mystically united to the body of Jesus. And he's the first Gentile who experiences that in his baptism, He's so caught up with this bigger story that makes sense of his like his story that he's lived in his whole life. Which is something that you want to. Like you want to be caught up in a bigger story. Marketers know this. Marketing companies, advertising agencies, they know your heart. And they know that a fundamental desire in your heart is to be swept up in to be caught up in a bigger story. I'm gonna show you an example of a, um, uh, there's been so much heated conversation around this ad that, that shows us this so well. So put the ad on the screen. There we go, the Nike advertisements. Here's what that's communicating to your heart, not just to your head, but like deep in your soul. Here's what that's communicating. That if you get behind our product, it's not just a product. Like, this, this is not just something for your feet, right? Like, to keep your feet warm and dry. If you buy Nike shoes, you're a part of something. You're making a difference in the world. This isn't about your shoes. This is about a movement. This is about something that's bigger than you, and you can be a part of it. If you're a person who doesn't care about Advertising or marketing or story and you like numbers and like objective things, here, here's some numbers for you. Nike stock year to date is up over 22%, like 10% more than industry average, which shows us that this is working. But the thing is, like if you've been caught up in the Nike story, if you didn't burn your shoes or you're still wearing them, which I hope you didn't, uh, if you're caught up in the story, then like it might energize you for a while and it's a fine and good thing, but it'll only energize you for so long because it's, only, it's a story that's only so big. Like it's not a story that's big enough for the bigness of your heart. Your heart desires a big, grand, significant story to be swept up in. A story that includes Jews and Gentiles and Ethiopian eunuchs. The story of Jesus, the story of Israel culminating in Jesus and then going forth to the ends of the earth. This is a story that you're invited to be swept up in. That you don't have to feel like an outsider. Like you don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious about, man, do I have any place where I belong? Do I matter? Am I just on the outside looking in? Am I just experiencing exclusion? You can be a part of this bigger story. You can be included, mystically united to the body of Jesus. Swept up in a big, grand, significant, beautiful story for the whole cosmos. That God is pursuing you, that Jesus is for the outsider. Um, I want to close with this story. A few weeks ago, one of my very favorite pastors and writers, his name Eugene Peterson, he passed away, and uh, it was really sad, and I was kind of tracking and following his funeral online and seeing what people were saying about it, and uh, things just uh, like kind of blew up. All these people were posting about um, Eugene Peterson's son and what he had to say at his dad's funeral. And so someone shared the story of what Eugene Peterson's son said. I'm just going to read you what this person posted. Eugene Peterson's son, Leif, said at his dad's funeral that his dad had only one sermon, that he had everyone fooled for 29 years of pastoral ministry, that for all of his books, he only had one message. It was a secret Leif said that his dad had let him in on early in his life. It was a message that Leif said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years. Words that his dad had snuck into his room at night when he was a small boy and whispered over him as he slept. Eugene Peterson whispered these words over his son hundreds, thousands of times. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. God loves you. God is on your side. God is coming after you. He is relentless. Jesus is for you. Jesus is for the other. Jesus is for the outsider. Jesus is for those Who are on the margins, who might be excluded. So listen to these words again, and don't hear them as perhaps Eugene Peterson said them to his son hundreds, thousands of times. But hear these words for yourself, spoken over you, to you. God loves you, God is on your side. God is coming after you. He is relentless. Let's pray. Lord, what good news it is that you are for us. That you're for the outsider. That you welcome us in. That in you we find, in your story we find that we belong and that we matter. That we can be swept up in this grand and beautiful narrative for the whole cosmos, the whole world, the whole galaxy. Thank you that you're for us. That you're on our side. That you love us. I pray that that would sink down deep into our heart, into our bones this morning. Amen. Amen.